Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We are a number of weeks into a series called From Platforms to Pillars, looking at the book of Exodus, but also in how our society is a platform society. We are encouraged to place ourselves on a platform. We live increasingly dominated by giant platforms which deliver us what our desires want. And we're contrasting that with what I think is the biblical call to actually instead not just put yourself on a platform, but to live a life as a pillar in the living temple that God is building in the world. And so we're walking through Exodus, and uh, last week we looked at Passover, uh, this meal the Israelites took before they headed out into the wilderness. They head out into the wilderness, and that's where we're going to pick it up. They're not exactly into the wilderness. They're getting to the edges of Egypt. But we're going to begin in uh, Exodus 14, verse 5, where it says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them after before being ready to let them go. And said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi, I mean, you thought Victorian town names were bad, Andy, nearby Hatheroth, opposite Baal Zephon. We're going to come back to this and work through the story of Israel passing through the sea. But I just wanted to begin in a book I read, um, I think it was about a year ago, and it was a book by the British historian, Dominic Sandbrook. And it was about Britain in the 1970s. And one thing you probably wouldn't think of when you think of Britain in the 1970s is the movie Star Wars. When you think of Star Wars, Star Wars is this big space epic that became an absolute cinematic sort of sensation in the mid-1970s. And classically, when you think of it, most of the actors are American. It was made by George Lucas, who's an American. But uh, Sandbrook actually begins by telling the story of the making of Star Wars, which actually was shot in Britain. The reason it was shot in Britain is because Britain's economy was absolutely tanking at this time. And Lucas, wanting to make this movie on a budget, decided to make it in Britain because everything was so cheap. And so the story he begins is like these Californians coming across and, or, you know, classic sort of Californian attitudes, and then experiencing the realities of 1970s Britain, which is in significant decline at this time. There are strikes, which mean the streets are filled with garbage bags. And for a particular period there, for a couple of years, Britain actually went on to a three-day working week because of the energy shock. Uh, Because of the OPEC oil blockade and uh, raising of oil prices, uh, the price of inflation went up, energy went up, there was significant unemployment, and the living standards for the first time since the end of the war began to really decline. And so you've got this complete contrast between this great space opera about the future and heroism, and then Lucas is trying to like make this movie, and constantly his film crew are almost always going on strike. So everything's about strikes at this time. And what's happening 
in Britain in the 1970s is one of those moments where you have this clash between what people have been promised, what they feel they're entitled to. The promise after the war was that we can look after you, living standards will increase, we can care for you, they created the NHS, we'll look after you and you have, you have healthcare and things will get better. Uh, we're not gonna go to unemployment, inflation's gonna remain low, things will remain cheap and life will be good and it will keep on improving. Yet it's the 70s and everything changes. And you see this sense of real, almost apocalyptic concern that comes. Uh, this is also a time where there's a threat of war, nuclear war, there's the Cold War, the environmental movement is just starting. There's movies like Watership Down, which is this allegory. I saw it as a kid, it just, oh my goodness, it just traumatized me. That movie, there's this sort of allegory of the environmental challenges. And so you get what Peter Berger calls asymmetry, which is just a dumb academic way of saying something really simple. Honestly, I had to like read about seven pages to get his concept of asymmetry, but let me boil it down to you in a simple sentence, which he could have just written instead of torturing me. When the encouraged life that you're encouraged to live by your society is in complete contrast to the actual life you live. And what was happening is the order that had been built up in society seemed to be being undone. What had been created seemed to be moving into an anti-creation. But what Sandbrook notes is at this moment when what people were expecting wasn't being delivered, when there was significant frustration, when there was almost this apocalyptic sense that the world that people had understood since the end of the war was disappearing, that this released actually a whole lot of creativity, Star Wars being one of those things. It creates youth culture. Many of the genres of music which we are used to today emerge at this time. There was all kinds of radical experiments with the future and technology in terms of people like going and studying communes and new social movements. I'm not saying they're all good, but there was this definite burst of creative energy. And often when an old order is finishing, it actually allows people to then imagine in the shock of the old order ending, the possibility of a new world. Now, what's really interesting is a number of the things that were happening in the 1970s in Britain are happening in our world today. We've gone through a period where actually we're starting to see the living standards that we are used to declining. In Britain, they're actually falling quite significantly at this time. Energy, which was cheap, we're going through another energy shock. Inflation, which many people had no idea has ever existed, is actually going up. The ability to buy a home now has not gone from something which seems difficult to almost an impossibility for many people. You see the return of strike action in certain places. I was in Sydney recently and watching the teachers on strike. The environmental challenge that came before people in the 1970s as something new is now here. And so there's a number of similarities where there's a sense of hopelessness that has come in and people feel a sense of being ripped off, particularly the young. So there's a lot of similarities to the 1970s. And so I was fascinated this week to listen to an interview where two historians, uh, or a political editor and historian, interviewed Dominic Sandbrook and said, you wrote a book about the 70s, are we back there again? And his answer was yes, but. Yes, we're back there in many of the structural things that are happening are very similar. But he said what's not happening is the release of creative energy. That actually almost what is happening is there's a kind of passivity that there's almost a sense of hopelessness that has taken over. 
and is growing slowly as people realize that what they were promised, what they were encouraged to live is not delivering the lived life. What they were encouraged in their workplaces is not delivering. What they were encouraged to work towards economically is not delivering. What they thought they would have in terms of family relationships is not delivering. And so I think this is partially one of the fruits of our platform society. I've been giving you new platforms every week, all kinds of different ones from the ancient world to modern, but actually I'm just more going to talk today about the effect that happens at this moment of our platform society. And I'm going to argue that platform society is actually leading to passivity and hopelessness. And this is where we dig back into the book of Exodus. So the Israelites have left They've gone through the great deliverance. They've had the Passover meal. They've grabbed their unleavened bread and they've headed off with the promise of Pharaoh that you can just go and everything will be wonderful. They're packed and ready to go, hundreds of the thousands of them heading off in this great sea of people towards the promised land. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. He regrets letting them go. He's capricious and flips on a dime. And then he sends after them, not just a messenger saying, hey, come back, but actually sends the best troops of one of the global superpowers at this day against an unarmed group of civilians who are wandering through the outer eight reaches of Egypt towards where God is sending them. And so let's pick this up in Exodus 14.10. How do they respond to this? As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Now, think how pumped these people were, leaving behind exploitation, oppression, slavery. But listen to their tone now, and this becomes a repeated theme in Exodus. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. There's some hopelessness in here. And it's perhaps slight melodramatic. But it sees this element that very often a spirit of criticism wells up in us at particularly moments when God is moving. We fail to see what God is doing, his great work of deliverance, because we get stuck in this sense of looking up and seeing the Egyptians. And often what happens, and many people will be able to identify with this in this room, is that so often, I've seen this in my own life, but pastorally, again and again, someone will have a breakthrough. God will do something. Maybe they're breaking away from an addiction, or there's been a crisis of faith and they move forward, or they've been working through a relational issue or an employment issue, and God comes and does something. But the forces of Anti-creation have a habit of reconstituting their forces and regrouping and coming after you again. Very often, it's actually the moment after deliverance that the enemy turns up. And so this is what they're experiencing. The counterattack that often follows on the heels of deliverance. And when this happens, it can lead to frustration and hopelessness. So Moses, we've seen him, reluctant leader, encounters the presence of God in a burning bush as he's a shepherd. God calls him to this role. 
He said, I can't speak. I can't do this. I don't have the stuff to do this. God's like, no, no, no. I'm sending Aaron. He'll speak. Staff, remember the staff? It was turned into a snake. Pick it up. Face your fears. I'm with you. And so Moses at this moment, he's got, he's really stuck between the devil and the, and the deep blue sea. He's got in front of him the sea, which in Jewish understanding of the world was a place of fear, of chaos. If you think of the images of the sea at the beginning of scriptures, you think of the great descriptions of things like Leviathan and the sea monsters representing chaos. So the sea which represents anti-creation. And then he's also got the Egyptian army coming at them. He's really caught between a rock and a hard place. But good on him. He steps into the leadership mantle and he finally gets up and he says something in response to this criticism. This complaining. Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. So read verse 14 again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now this, when you hear this, uh, you can imagine the fear of the people. This is a huge problem they're in. It's life and death. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. There seems a rightness to this advice. When we compare this to what the scriptures say in Psalm 46 verse 10, it aligns. Where God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. They are definitely stuck between the nations, the Goyim, the Egyptians, and a problem. They're amongst the nations. And at this moment, this is a time you be still and know that I am God. And in very many ways, this also seems to align with after all of the last season where people since particularly the pandemic have been rethinking about their lives and wanting to pull back and how much we were working, how much we were running around like headless chickens. When we stopped, there was a lot of re-life thinking and taking stock. And a lot of people felt this sense to slow down to find a sense of stillness. So it aligns with that. It also aligns with a lot of the advice that we're given today when we're told to stop, take stock of our feelings, to work through things, perhaps sit down, talk to someone. So this seems to be right. Be still, retreat, relax, step back. If you stop there, we've got a neat answer. But the scriptures don't always deal in neat answers. They make you work. So what's God's response? Verse 15 this beautiful moment, be still. I mean, he could literally put that on a card and sold that at Kurong, like, like put it on your fridge. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Like tell the Israelites, just move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Moses is like, guys, retreat, relax, step back, be still. Don't let fear get to you. And God's like, move people. <laughs> like, get this start. Just, just move. And it seems completely counterintuitive to so much of what is the wisdom of our moments. 
So how do we understand this? How do we understand that in Psalm 46 verse 10, it's like, be still and know that I'm God and I'll be exalted amongst the nations. At this moment, like Moses, poor Moses, he's literally responded to that and God's like, no, move. Because being still in a time of passivity, culturally, is often the wrong call. Because when we are caught in really difficult situations, there is the flight and flight, there's the fight and flight response. But I heard a short little thing one time, I can't remember, there was some terrorist attack somewhere and they got a security expert on and he said, everyone knows about fight and flight, but most people get killed by the third F, freeze. Something happens and people just freeze. They're like, this is a guy with a gun. I'm just, I don't know what to do now. I'm frozen. So yes, the retreat, the be still is often very right. And maybe even right for you at certain things in your life at this time. But in cultural moments where passivity, what did the Egyptian army want? They want the Israelites to freak out, sit there and do nothing so they can massacre them in between the sea. They've strategically come around and basically backed them up against the sea so they can kill them or take them back to Egypt. And I want to argue that we are in a moment of passivity. The platform society delivers passivity. That's why there's not this great burst of energy that you saw in the 1970s or other times in history where the promised, the encouraged life of culture and what's actually happening doesn't lead to some sort of almost like countercultural, creative outpouring. Passivity is the moment. Look everywhere. Watch how people sit at bus stops. Passivity is everywhere. Where does passivity flow from? Passivity flows from hopelessness. Passivity means not really caring about things and just letting them stay the way they are without doing anything about it because you feel hopeless. Passivity is also often about self-protection. I don't want to move because if I move, I might get hurt. But passivity often has a root. What is the root of passivity? The root of passivity is perfectionism. Perfectionism. And we think of perfectionism in terms of overwork, of breaking our backs to get things right. The person who moves and constantly is doing stuff like to tick every box. And that's true. That's very true. And maybe that was even true of a previous season that we were in as a society. But perfectionism can also lead to us being passive. This can happen because we want things to be perfect But when we've tried and failed a lot before, we might feel like giving up and not trying to fix the problem anymore because if we can't do it perfectly, let's not do it. And the platform society is a machine which breeds perfectionism. It shows us a perfect image of the world digitally, puts it before our face, and it tempts us with a perfect vision of what our life could be like. While at the same time, through its seamless Delivery mechanisms, promises to deliver us perfection. And when we get stuck into perfection, that then, like a domino, leads to something else, introspection. So we're passive, which leads to perfectionism, which leads to introspection. And when we're passive and we have this spirit of perfectionism in us, it leads us to introspection. We go inward. And if introspection is a kind of, almost like a religion today, and I'm arguing it is, its trinity would be the self, feelings, and our perception of the world. Rob Riemer, 
again, said it last week, coming to a soul care seminar right near you, says this, some people can't see Jesus because they're wrestling with introspection. Introspection is a disease of the soul in which your eyes are focused on yourself and it's often connected to toxic shame. The shame comes from holding yourself to a standard of perfectionism, which is not from God. It's actually from what the platform society has delivered to you. And so you just remain passive and your eyes are just focused on yourself. The world's too crazy. Don't look at it. Switch off, but just focus on yourself. And what's interesting at the moment is the Israelites start to complain. Like, why did you bring us here? Well, there are not enough graves in Egypt. This is a moment of introspection. They're too focused on comparing the, to the past standards of Egypt, even though they were rubbish, and that they're missing out on what God wants to do in this moment. Well, where does introspection come from? Passivity, from perfectionism, from introspection, and really, I mean, just think about what, what, what are these Israelites at the moment? Moses has gone before Pharaoh. Moses has gone really scared before Pharaoh and done it anyway with God. He's literally picked up staffs that have turned into snakes. There's been wave after wave of plagues. The Passover feast has happened. Moses is trying to organize this huge sort of group of humans to leave Egypt. Like this is an epic, epic work. Why is he doing this? Did Moses have to do this? No, Moses was hunky-dory. He was a rich bloke in Egypt who most people thought was an Egyptian, not Hebrew. He had access to court life. He had access to all the privilege of Egypt and he's done all this for them. And they're like, what did you save us? Why did you try so hard to bring us out of slavery? Like, like why did you save us from torture and being beaten? Like what is going on here is entitlement. Entitlement. Now, interestingly, if you go back, where does entitlement come from? David Lake says this. Our upbringing can have a bearing upon this. If we were spoiled as children or overindulged, it can foster passive tendencies. We might be looking for someone else to solve our problems for us without lifting a finger ourselves. Now, some of you will be going, was I, did I have an overspoiled childhood? Was I overindulged? Others who are parents might be going, am I in overindulging? Stan, Netflix, Disney Plus. Like, is that too many? Like, people are doing these things in their brains probably right now. I want to say to you, put the family thing aside for a second, and I'm going to argue that the platform society overindulges everyone. It's cultural now. It's not just familial. We are all being spoiled and overindulge as our culture promising all this stuff. And that is fostering the passive tendencies. And what that does is we look to the platform society, someone else, to do something ourselves. It's the platform society which has actually spoiled us and overindulged us. Now what's really interesting is, at this moment, and this is a little detail you can miss in the scriptures, like I love the scriptures, they're just filled with so many little things that if you miss the story, you miss it. That what it says earlier is as they're preparing to head out of Egypt. Do you remember the first sermon I began, it talked about a new Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph. Joseph was the pillar who built up this life for the Hebrews in Egypt. Joseph was like this pillar who obeyed God in really difficult circumstances. You know Joseph is with them? He's part of the Exodus. 
He's actually traveling with them. Now, some of you who've got your Bible are like, come on, Mark, what are you talking about? He died. Oh, the bloke is dead. Well, if you look early in Exodus 13, verse 19, it actually says that they're carrying Joseph's bones as they want to live out the promise of Joseph that God had for him. And so they're actually carrying a pillar, but the pillar is now bones. And so often what happens in these moments is we're looking for pillars to do something for us in moments of entitlement. Like who's going to be the person who stands up at this moment? And there is a pillar amongst them. It's Joseph, but his bones. So entitlement is often looking for someone to do something for you who is no longer there or doesn't have responsibility to do that thing for you. It's, I want pillars, but I don't want to be one. Dr. John Townsend says this. In its essence, entitlement goes deeper than a person thinking, it's okay if I want to be lazy because someone else will bear my burdens, or I'm so special that the rules don't apply to me. In fact, entitlement goes so deep that it rejects the very foundations on which God constructed the universe. At its heart, entitlement is a rejection of reality itself. When the promise when the encouraged life of society does not act a link with what's actually being delivered, and there is an opportunity to step into new creation with God, entitlement will actually come against that process like a corrosive acid. Because entitlement exploits pillars until there are none left and they're simply just bones like Joseph. Entitlement blames pillars rather than building up pillars. So how have the Israelites got themselves into this place? Well, I think if we look back at the verse in Exodus 14.10, when the Egyptians first appear, we see what went wrong. And in the ESV version, the words are slightly different. I think it's really revealing. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. This is like worship language. To lift up your eyes. This is often language the scriptures use of God. To behold is often to behold God. They are looking up and beholding the Egyptians. They are looking at the negative, the hopelessness. They're looking at the facts that are in front of them, not actually the faith that actually God can change this situation. They then are crying out and complaining to Moses. We are not called to look up and behold the Egyptians of our day. We are not called to look up and behold the chaotic seas of anti-creation in front of us. We're actually called to look up and behold Jesus. Rob Reamer again, introspection ultimately is rooted in pride. It is a self-focus, and we need to repent of pride, lift our eyes off of self and up to Jesus, and let the Spirit speak to us as we walk in faith. And this begins to lead us to a key way out of the devil in the deep blue sea, the Egyptians, and the ocean. Humility. Now, I want to tell you real quick a story, and it's called a midrash. And if you don't know what a midrash is, the rabbis would sort of create almost like fan fiction around scripture where they would like try and teach something by telling a little story as part of a biblical story. So they're not necessarily saying this is true. It's like a teaching mechanism. And they invented a story that actually explains something because what they realized is it doesn't really say exactly how 
The, the Israelites walk into the water. What happens? It leaves out the details. It's like Moses raised his staff and then the people are walking through. So they tell this story of a character who comes earlier called Nashon. And he was a leader in Israel. And in this Midrash, the rabbis would tell, the Israelites are there like they're freaking out. Some are complaining because the Egyptians are coming to them. Others are looking at the water. Moses is like trying to, but I thought we meant to say, be still God. And like God's like, just move, man. And Nashon is looking at all of this. And Nashon is not like Moses. He's not the guy called to speak into this moment. But Nashon, in humility, does something. And you know what he does? He starts to walk. And Nashon walks and he gets to the edge of the water because he's heard what God said through Moses. And Moses hasn't even entered in this part. Like He basically walks forward and he walks until the water's up to his ankles and nothing happens. He walks until the water is up to his knees and nothing happens. He walks until the water's up to his waist and nothing happens. And the rabbis say he walks up to his chest, nothing happens. And you can tell it's a sort of story. It goes all the way up to the point where literally the people are watching him and all they can see is his sort of forehead and nose, like a snorkel out of the water and nothing is happening. But it's the moment when his nose and his forehead go under the water that God then parts the sea. It's a story, it's illustrative, but actually it says something. Nashon had a kind of humility to move forward. Why is it humility to move forward? We often associate humility with being still and stepping back. No. The truly humble move forward with God, knowing they may make mistakes, face criticism, but their agenda is God's agenda, not the agenda of humans. Their agenda is God's agenda, not maintaining their own sense of righteousness. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, For the righteous may fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble once and calamity strikes. What does it mean here? Is that pillars have detached their sense of personal righteousness that they're trying to achieve in their own strength from the action of God moving forward. Nashon could have looked like an idiot, and he probably did for some time, but he moved forward because he wasn't afraid of what other people thought. So the do not afraid is, yes, it's sometimes don't be afraid of the Egyptians of the sea, but sometimes it's also do not be afraid of making a mistake because you are so invested on being this perfect person. And I'm not talking about sin here. Hear me right. I'm not saying go therefore and sin. Clearly, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, I think in our world at this moment of a platform society where everyone can be seen, everyone's on a stage, we are desperately afraid to step forward because we fear the judgment of other people. Nashon fears God. He's detached his sense of righteousness. We don't need to. If you're a follower of Jesus, your sense of righteousness is dealt with. Rather, what God is calling for you is like, I've done my work on the cross. Just move forward with me. So number two, number one, pillars move forward with humility. Number two, pillars move forward with their God-given authority. Remember the staff? What did the staff symbolize? The staff that turned into a snake that Moses had. It symbolized his authority. This is why in verse 16, God's like, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. What's the biblical callback here? 
This is literally like Genesis 1 stuff that God is inviting Moses to do, to literally take unformed, uncreation, anti-creation water and to split it and so dry ground comes up. Like this is literally like God saying to Moses, walk with me and I in partnership with you because of the authority that you have, you can literally do the stuff that I did at the beginning of creation because you're working in my authority. That's my identity. That's who I am. New creation happens when you least expect it. But it happens when we walk in authority with God. We need to be more invested and focused on the authority we have in God than we do in the authority that we give peers and our platform society. And what's incredible is number three, with God, pillars turn chaos into glory. Verse 17 says this, and I will gain, this is God speaking, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. How's it, what's going on here? He's saying through this bad stuff that's happening and Israel following him, God's going to be glorified. Through this battle with chaos, through this struggle with the Egyptians, the Lord will be glorified. God works through struggle, through difficulty, to bring glory to himself. You can hear the emotion in my voice because every time I say the word glory, I think of our drive home from Trudy's cancer diagnosis where she said to me, whatever happens, I want this journey to glorify God, whatever happens. Whether I get healed or not, I want this to glorify God. I'm not standing, I didn't say that. I'm not standing up saying, I said that. I didn't say that. And there's something so true and pure and biblical in that moment. Pillars don't complain. They don't remain passive or wait for some other pillar to do it. They move forward into the chaos, the unknown, the awkwardness, the suffering with God for his glory. They say, as it says in Joshua 24, verse 15, as for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. For pillars moving forward into difficulty of life, of singleness, of parenting, of, of perhaps death, of frustration of your past, of all of this stuff. It's not that all of that is going to fall into a moment. Yes, where did the Israelites go after, their, after they come out of Egypt? They go into the wilderness. And sometimes life does seem like thing after thing. Man, that feels like my life at the moment. But in the midst of it, I see God's glory when I align myself to what he's doing and when others who are going through difficulty align with what God is doing in the good times and the bad. Verse 29, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses his servant. There's a biblical joke in here, you may have missed it. Who remains still? The Egyptian army, because they're dead. If it wasn't for Israel to remain still, they would have been dead. God flips this on his head, like, move people with me. It's actually the Egyptian army, which is dead, 
like the sea has got them. Anti-creations come back on themselves. God doesn't want your perfectionism. His work on the cross has dealt with that. God cannot work with your passivity. For after a while, it becomes resistance. He's in the business of new creation, and he wants to make you into a pillar. He doesn't not want you to have a will, where you just sit there and you're just like passive, receiving, clicking. He gave you a will. All of us have got a will. But he wants our will submitted to his will and responsive to his will and our spirit aligned to his spirit. There is a key moment at this time, I 100% believe. I think the the big threat against the church and what God wants to do in this time is not some massive turn to evil or compromise. There's compromise happening, but I think it's actually good people who remain stuck in passivity and perfectionism. A lot of the people who are just cut and sick have left the church, I think, now. Welcome to our overseas listeners of our podcast. Cutting sick is like going crazy in sin. It's inbuilt translation. But I think good people stuck in passivity. God is calling you forward. God is calling you whatever circumstance. This is a point where God is calling for pillars who are going to contend and walk forward. We need more Nashons who walk into the water and sometimes it's up to your chest or your neck and you feel like nothing's happening, but you know God is calling you forward. This is how we live very differently in the midst of a platform society. Let's stand. God, we recognize that there are times when Moses is the people you use. Incredible leaders, fearlessness, stand before pharaohs. But we know that you call us, you call us to be pillars, to not be passive, to not be perfectionist, to step forward with you to move forward with you. Show us when to be still and when to move. But God, I just want to just pray off in Jesus' name any false sense of perfectionism, any sense of passivity, any sense of introspection, any sense of entitlement. God, we just pray off these things in Jesus' name. They are as much exploitative as So many other things which we rank as higher or worse. God, instead of entitlement, may we have gratefulness. Instead of introspection, may we have worship. Instead of perfectionism, may we have grace. God, instead of passivity, may we have actually passion for you and your work and your call. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God, now as we move into this time of worship, may you speak to us, may you work in hearts. We pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to us, free us. Help us not behold the Egyptians. Lift up our eyes and pray that we behold you, Jesus. In your name, let's worship. Let's worship.